The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. But it turns out, really what drives cooler equations the most are non-modifiable risk factors, most specifically age and gender. So the finding in an adult of no calcium in the coronary arteries is actually quite reassuring. Lots of data suggests it's very, very unlikely you have clinically important coronary disease and your calcium score is zero in an asymptomatic patient. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's episode of Annals on Call is based on an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine, February 12, 2019, titled Selective Use of Coronary Artery Calcium Testing for Shared Decision-Making, Guideline Endorsed and Ready for Prime Time. We have the senior author of this paper, Dr. Michael J. Blaha, to discuss the paper. Dr. Blaha is an associate professor of cardiology and epidemiology at Johns Hopkins and serves as the director of clinical research for the Sicarone Center for the Prevention of Heart Disease. His research interests include electronic cigarettes, mobile health technology risk prediction, and the early detection of subclinical atherosclerosis. Clinically, he specializes in treating patients with advanced subclinical atherosclerosis and in interpreting cardiac CT scans. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We're very excited today to uh, discuss coronary artery calcium testing as an adjunct to risk estimation in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. In order to really understand this uh, wonderful ideas and opinions piece, perhaps, Mike, you could explain the concept behind coronary artery calcium testing. Sure, Bob, and, and thanks for having me on today. And let's start with some of the history of calcium scoring, and then I guess the idea behind why it works. So I always like to say that the calcium score is not a new test at all. In fact, it's been around since about 1990, dating back to the days of electron beam CT, an older scanner technology, and the publication of what is now referred to as the Agatston score, calcium score, in 1990. So really, we've been developing data on calcium scoring really over almost three decades now. And what we know now is that the calcium score which is a, a gated CT scan, but it's a non-contrast CT scan. So it's gated to the cardiac cycle. So the patient wears electrodes on their chest, but there's no injection of contrast. So when you do one of these quick scans, the things that look bright in the heart are calcium. And all the operator needs to do is then identify whether that calcium is within the coronary arteries or not. It takes only about two minutes to interpret one of these. And it gives you a score, which is a total burden of calcification within the coronary arteries. And really in the 1990s, from John Rumberger and others, it was established that there's a direct relationship between the total amount of calcium in the coronary arteries and the total burden of atherosclerosis. So we know now that the calcium score is really a measure of the total burden of coronary atherosclerosis, the marker of that total burden of coronary atherosclerosis. So the calcium score works by giving you a measure 
of that disease. So rather than like a risk factor, for example, like hypertension or diabetes, that gives you a risk for having coronary atherosclerosis, the calcium score is actually a direct measure of that coronary atherosclerosis, what we usually like to call a disease score rather than a risk factor in the traditional sense. So we like to think that the calcium score integrates all the risk factor exposure over the course of one's lifetime, and that could be genetic, environmental, or traditional risk factor exposure that might vary over the years. It integrates all that exposure in an individual in the vascular bed of interest, and then therefore gives kind of a summary measure of disease exposure and vulnerability and burden of disease within the coronary arteries. So how it really works is giving you that early measure of the total plaque burden that might predict both kind of short-term risk as well as long-term risk for the individual. And it's taken decades, really, to establish the research behind calcium scoring from kind of the understanding of the biology and then understanding the implications of the test and its cost, effectiveness, and appropriate use. And that's what brings us up to the present, where now several decades of research have gone into bringing this to the mainstream as a potential test of great value for further risk stratification. In your article, you have two sentences that I highlighted that I really liked, and it refers to the difference in the 2018 American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology guidelines from the 2013. And the way you put it together with your colleagues, for patients at either high or very low risk for ASCVD, imprecise risk estimation may not be clinically relevant. For all other patients, using the pooled cohort equations as a standalone risk assessment tool may be insufficient for definitive decision-making. This is a big change, and... We've discussed this on some previous podcasts, how important the accurate risk estimation is. Why is risk estimation so difficult uh, with the data that are in the calculator? That's a great question, because that really helps us understand why the calcium score adds so much. So, like you said, there's some patients that we all agree are very, very low risk. And some patients we agree with any calculator are extremely high risk. But unfortunately, across the whole population, that represents a very small minority of total patients. Actually, uh, patients or people within, let's say, the U.S. population, the adult population, the majority of those reside somewhere in between very low and very high risk. They're somewhere in between, which uh, you know, some have called like intermediate risk, for example, and the new guidelines do use that expression. So the pooled cohort equations are you know, mathematical equations that use data from the cohort studies to predict 10-year risk. But it turns out, Really, what drives pooled core equations the most are non-modifiable risk factors, most specifically age and gender. So, unfortunately, it becomes difficult clinically to use the equations in certain intermediate risk patients because age and gender drive the risk so much. So, it is not that helpful for, for example, to say that older men have more heart disease than younger women because we kind of all know that. And it turns out the actual influence of individual risk factors on the risk is not that strong. So patients in the middle, their risk might be predominantly driven by their age and their gender, and their modifiable risk factors might only be making a sort of small contribution to their risk, which is not really helping you push that patient into a high-risk category or bring that patient down into a low-risk category. So it's really difficult with, uh, with risk prediction in these uh, middle-aged adults because of the influence of age and gender on risk assessment, as well as the reliance on the pool of core equations on simple binary classifications like do you have diabetes or not, or do you smoke or not, or do you have high blood pressure, with really no assessment of kind of how severe the blood pressure is exactly in terms of its treatment, whether the diabetes is longstanding or not, what the burden of smoking has been over the years, etc. So it makes risk prediction with traditional risk factors quite difficult. 
And that's really where the calcium score comes in. So that really leads into um, part of the 2018 guidelines says that we should identify subclinical atherosclerosis. And what I heard you say earlier when you were talking about the calcium artery uh, score is that that's exactly what you're doing with these scans. Right. So the new 2018 guidelines, as you said, have kind of restored the higher level of evidence given to calcium scoring for so-called intermediate-risk patients. Uh, the 2010 guidelines, the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association, did provide a so-called 2A recommendation for calcium scoring in intermediate-risk patients. Then in 2013, the guidelines really did away with the concept of intermediate risk and really just divided patients into statin-eligible or statin-not-eligible, which was a fairly narrow viewpoint towards risk assessment. The 2018 guidelines restored the idea that there's a wide swath of people in what's called the borderline intermediate risk group, where we just can't be certain what their risk is just based on traditional risk factors alone. So in that intermediate risk group, they restored that 2A recommendation for consideration of calcium scoring as part of shared decision-making to help drive risk assessment and, of course, then preventative decision-making, preventative pharmacotherapy lifestyle intensity decision-making. So, yeah, that's where we stand with the, the 2018 guidelines. And the idea there would be to take an intermediate-risk patient who might be intermediate-risk, perhaps, based on their age and gender alone. For example, we know from the 2013 guidelines that a man above the age of 55 and certainly above the age of 60 is statin-eligible just on behalf of being a 55 or 60-year-old man. And these new guidelines that would put that patient in the intermediate risk zone. In the error, we might say, well, let's say if you don't have traditional risk factors and you're intermediate risk based on your age and your gender, let's engage in a shared decision-making, personalized risk assessment approach. We might actually say, okay, but do you actually have atherosclerosis, which is the disease that we propose to treat with many of our preventative pharmacotherapies, and say, do you have the disease and what's the burden of the disease? And can we customize personalize your risk assessment further by actually measuring disease burden rather than just, for example, assuming that you must have plaque because you're a middle-aged man. That's great. And I don't know if it's an original concept, but the phrase, the power of zero, could you expand on the power of zero for coronary artery calcium scoring? I'm so glad you brought that up. And I do want to credit one of my mentors, Kuram Nasir, who's now at Yale, for really coming up with that phrase. And it's a phrase that he and I have been working on for a long time. But we don't mean to trivialize the concept of a zero calcium score. We try to communicate more clearly the power of such a score. So what we like about the calcium score compared to other risk markers is it can actually identify very low risk cases as well as very high risk cases. So for example, other risk factors, let's say for example, or risk markers like a C-reactive protein, for example, can tell you maybe someone who might be at higher risk than you thought. But it's really incapable of telling you who's really low risk. For example, if you measure a CRP and the risk and the value comes back low, you can't really look at that patient and say that you're a very low risk patient. That's what under the new guidelines is called a risk enhancer. Uh, it's something that helps move a patient up the risk spectrum, but it's not really a way to fully risk stratify a patient because it's not so reassuring when negative. So Dr. Nasir and I, Kuram Nasir and I, worked for maybe 10 years on the idea of, of negative risk factors, factors that actually help reassure you and reduce your risk estimate and truly risk stratify and move you up and down the risk spectrum. So the finding in an adult of no calcium in the coronary arteries is actually quite reassuring. Lots of data suggests it's very, very likely you have clinically important coronary disease and your calcium score is zero. 
and an asymptomatic patient, very, very likely to need coronary revascularization or have a coronary event in the next 10 years or longer. So the power of zero is the idea that if you scan someone and you find no calcium in the coronary arteries, you can actually move them down the risk spectrum quite a bit. So instead of always looking for more patients to treat, this is also a way to find patients who might not need aggressive preventative pharmacotherapy. And so they spin on and the paradigm shift from where we've been a long time of always trying to find more patients to treat, finding new ways to find more patients to treat. But this is a way to actually find patients who might need less aggressive preventive pharmacotherapy. And that, that was one of the criticisms of the 2013 guidelines, which is that they resulted in treatment of almost all middle-aged adults, particularly men and women of an older age. This is an idea that maybe you can take some of those patients, scan them and customize the risk and find calcium score of zero in about half of patients, so say, for example, who are middle-aged men, 50 years old, and many of those patients might be lower risk than you thought, a truly risk stratifier, risk move up or move down the risk spectrum with a calcium score of zero. So really, the original work on calcium scoring emphasized identifying high-risk cases, and now we're to a period of time where we also are very interested in identifying low-risk cases that we might approach, for example, with more aggressive lifestyle therapy alone. So another way to phrase this, I think, is to say that a score of zero uh, has very high specificity for the lack of coronary artery disease. Could you talk a little bit about some of the studies that showed this discriminatory pa- power of the coronary artery calcium scores? Because you include that in the uh, essay. If you go back to the history of calcium scoring, like I said, in the 90s, it was really well established and even in the 2000s, the, the calcium score adds a lot to traditional risk factors in terms of risk prediction. So there was this idea that, for example, the C statistic improves, the overall discriminatory power improves. But it really didn't tell us who to test or how to use the information. So really in the last 10 years, that's what we've worked on the most is, okay, great. So it adds risk prediction, but in whom and how? What we now look at is, is recent data that suggests, for example, let's take the MESA study, for example. That's the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. So we looked at patients who, let's say, were in this intermediate risk zone. We showed that in patients that are very low risk, the calcium score just doesn't add that much information because these patients are so low risk to begin with. That might be very young people. And in patients who have many, many risk factors, the calcium score doesn't add much because, once again, you already know they're higher risk. But now, recent research has shown that in the middle, in patients who have a 5 to 20% 10-year atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, it's about 50% that they might have calcium in their arteries or not. So it's kind of a coin flip, a great opportunity to use testing to figure out which patients are really low risk and which patients are really high risk. So the new data from MESA, and this has been confirmed in the bioimage study, Rotterdam study, uh, recent studies in the Heinz-Nix for recall study in Germany, et cetera, now shown all across the world. In these patients, you can move uh, about half of patients, for example, up or down the risk spectrum into lower risk groups or higher risk groups. And you mentioned very well the, the, the test characteristics of the calcium score. So the calcium score is an extremely sensitive test for some coronary atherosclerosis. It's a very highly specific test for clinically important disease. In other words, if you have some calcification or coronary arteries, it suggests that you have some coronary atherosclerosis. If you don't have any calcification or coronary arteries, there's a very high specificity for, for not having uh, clinically important coronary disease. So, it's a, so when negative, it's a great test to reduce risk. And when highly positive, it's a great test to say that you have a significant burden of disease and your risk is likely higher. So I'd say the new data on calcium scoring has emphasized both ends of that spectrum, identifying lower patients and higher patients with respect to the, the inherent sensitivity of the test for, for some coronary disease, as well as its specificity for kind of coronary atherosclerosis in general. 
so, so that's why they kind of the, some of the new areas in this field. And uh, what I think the last five or ten years have brought is an emphasis on lower scores. When you used to say, you know, if your score was very high, you're higher risk, and, and not make as big a deal about the lower scores. But now we realize that most of the action is in the zero to 100 range of thousand scores, realizing that zero is a lower condition. And even scores of 100 or above put you at significantly higher risk for most patients than you would have thought otherwise. And those patients are great candidates for, for example, aspirin and statins. So that's where I think we are nowadays. Uh, and that really relies on some of the cohort studies that were thoughtful enough to measure calcium scoring many, many years ago and finally giving us great 10, 15, 20-year data follow-up after calcium score. I love the phrase the, that you included, and I think you've said it already, de-risk. And one of the things that's really important in 2019 and beyond is to not overuse medications or technologies, etc., we do a lot of measurement of underuse, but it's just important not to overuse. And one of the things that I love about the way you've described it is the shift in how many people can we get on stands to how many people really don't need stands to me is beautiful. And I think that all physicians who practice primary care will really, really appreciate understanding this concept that you've uh, explained so uh, neatly. So let's say I go in and, and I happen to be a 70-year-old male, and so therefore I have a high AC, ASCVD score, at least the one that uh, the American Heart Association uses, the one uh, that was in the annals that we did a podcast on, I have a much lower score because it included a few other uh, characteristics. But let's say that I'm having a conversation with my primary care physician and uh, he suggests that I get coronary artery calcium scoring. Is this going to be a big financial burden for me? I'm on Medicare now. So it's a great question. So, and, and I'll retreat back to what you said there earlier about, which is a great point about this de-risking concept. Um, and really, we introduced that term around 2013 with the 2013 ACCHA guidance that were criticized for potentially leading to overtreatment of most adults. Um, so the idea with de-risk is sort of patients might be inherently at risk just because of their age and gender alone. You might need to... Uh, you might find the test valuable to de-risk them, to, to find the risk is lower than it would have inherently might have thought based on their demographics. So, so I, I agree of that term de-risking. I think it communicates the concept clearly. And so you brought up a, a, this, that great scenario here and talked about financial burden. So I think the calcium score, in terms of its value, needs to be viewed in the context of shared decision-making. So the test doesn't add much value if a patient has decided that they want to take an aspirin and a statin. And it doesn't have much value if they say, under no circumstances am I going to take an aspirin or statin. But it has tremendous value in patients who are uncertain or physicians who are uncertain about the value of an aspirin and statin in a particular individual because it adds that rich context to personalization for shared decision-making. Now, at Hopkins, we charge $75 out of pocket for the test for anyone. So the idea would be regardless of kind of your insurance, you can have access to the test for just $75, which is very similar to what the copay would be if it was covered by insurance. Um, so... That's our stance on this test, that it should be widely available at a low cost. We think the cost effectiveness is, is best at, 100, at $150 or less. So that's what we do at Hopkins. I would encourage most centers to try to charge $150 or less for this test. Now, it's not always covered by insurance, which is complicated. And hopefully these new guidelines that give a greater level of evidence and recommendation to calcium scoring will help encourage payers to cover the test. But that's where we stand right now. So I think increasingly payers will cover it. I would encourage most centers then to charge 
you know, an out-of-pocket cost that's very reasonable, more on the line of what would a, what a uh, out-of-pocket expense would be for a covered test in their practices so that the, the financial burden on patients isn't bad. And it's a very relatively low cost, to be honest, for a test that might tell you that you don't need to take a lifetime, uh, you know, a daily lifelong medic- preventive medication. So most of my patients find that that's a pretty good buy when they're trying to decide if they should take, a, say, a statin for the rest of their life, which might be for decades. I think it's a pretty good buy to find out, figure out what the risk really is. And that's in the context of statins. Maybe it even makes more sense in the modern era in terms of aspirin as well. But you know, that data on primary prevention of cardiovascular events with aspirin is, is really looking not so strong these days. As you see in the new 2019 prevention guidelines in the ACC and the AHA, they've downgraded the recommendations for aspirin primary prevention. So you can also find patients that, uh, for example, who have a calcium score of zero who are more likely to be harmed by aspirin than they are to benefit. And we think calcium scores of 100 or greater based on some modeling studies are patients that are more likely to get a clear benefit than harm from aspirin. So not only can it help you kind of decide about statins and shared decision-making, but also can potentially prevent over-treatment with aspirin in primary prevention of patients who truly are low-risk patients. So we think, uh, and from our cost-effectiveness studies, we think it's, it's quite cost-effective compared to a treat-all approach or a, or a guideline-based approach when the cost is, you know, $150 or less to the patient. So it's interesting that you brought up the aspirin because I have several of my friends who are not physicians Ask me about that just this week. Is it okay to not take aspirin or why should I worry about taking aspirin? So I really like the way you threw that in. So now uh, I'm sitting down with the patient. I say, I think that, you know, we're, we're in this nebulous zone. It might be worthwhile to do it. The patient says, well, I heard these CT scans give you a lot of radiation and, and what kind of risk do I have from that? Yeah, great, great question. I think we're trying to do increasing amounts of education for providers who might not be in cardiac imaging them to understand this test so they can communicate that to patients clearly. And what I always tell patients is that it's a fast, low-radiation test, thank goodness. Like I said, the test can be done in 10 or 15 minutes total of room time, and the actual acquisition time is only on the order of a couple of seconds with one breath hold. And it comes at the expense of about one millisievert of radiation, which is about like a bilateral mammogram. The old expression that the calcium score is like the mammogram of the heart is sort of outdated. It actually has some value. It does tell you kind of identifying preclinical disease and acting on it. But in some ways, we don't like that analogy to mammography where you have to do that mammogram every year, every other year, for example. The calcium score isn't like that. But there's some similarities. So that idea that it's a radiation to a mammogram is true. And compared to, let's say, a CT scan of the abdomen or a CT scan of the heart or a nuclear stress test, we're talking about maybe one-fifth or one-tenth as much radiation as a scan of the abdomen or a nuclear stress test. So it's a low radiation test. So it's, it's really in the radiation zone that it's very, very hard to determine if there's any medical consequences of that small amount of radiation because it's about a third of background radiation. Yeah, you can have three millisieverts of radiation just from environmental exposure. This is about a third of that in a year. That's very reassuring. This has been just a wonderful conversation and your article and now your explanation of the article has really opened my mind to a whole area of understanding prevention that I didn't understand previously. I love the way that you described the test as looking for burden of disease rather than as a risk factor. I think that's a very important concept in all of this. As we close down, what's the most important thing that you would like internists to take away from this discussion? A few practical points is that this calcium score is a great test in the context of shared decision-making. It should never be ordered 
without under, telling the patient exactly how it's going to, we're going to use the information. And it should be part of engaging in patients' preferences for care and things to make a, an educated, personalized decision for that patient. It should always be conducted in the context of shared decision-making, but some things that it shouldn't do. It is not a test that should drive downstream testing. For example, high calcium scores in the absence of symptoms shouldn't drive kind of, for example, stress testing and downstream cardiac catheterizations. We try to educate providers about that. If calcium scores high and a patient's completely asymptomatic, all they need is counseling, lifestyle, and aggressive preventive pharmacotherapy. And only in limited cases do we think a calcium score that's high should be followed up with, with downstream testing. That's in the case of, let's say, mild symptoms or atypical symptoms or even classic symptoms should be followed up with testing. So that's important. So some concern in the past that this test would lead to more downstream testing, and it really shouldn't when used appropriately. And it's also not a test that needs to be repeated that often. We, we do repeat a calcium score if the score is zero or maybe low positive in four to five years. But if, if, if you do get a calcium score and it comes back very high, that test does not need to be repeated because aspirin statins don't make the calcium score go down. And it, it can't tell you the efficacy of your therapy. So we try to discourage patients from asking for repeat calcium scores when the score is high. There's some value, of course, when the score is zero. So those are some practical points to remember about calcium scoring. And it, it's important to, to kind of get used to the test and how to use it and how to talk to patients about it. And I tell you, they love it once you do. And I usually show patients their scans. I'll pull it up on the computer and say, this is the reason why we're treating you with aspirin and statin, or this is the reason you, you know, this is maybe what caused the family history of heart disease in your father, this plaque right here. And this is the reason why I'm prescribing you an aspirin and statin, not because your risk is 7.7%, which is very hard to communicate to patients, but it's much more tangible. And you say, this is the plaque in your arteries and we want to get on top of this. Well, Mike, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this podcast. I think the uh, listeners will enjoy it just as much as I've enjoyed having this conversation with you. Well, thanks. It's a great opportunity to talk about calcium scoring, something I spent a lot of time thinking about, so I appreciate the opportunity. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. I absolutely love this article because... It added so much to what is now a trilogy of articles about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease estimation, who should get statins, and now who really deserves primary prevention. The first pearl that I got from this was that coronary artery calcium testing in asymptomatic patients either supports or excludes subclinical atherosclerosis. Dr. Blaha makes the important point that for shared decision-making in patients in what he calls the uh, difficult-to-decide uh, zone of about 5% to 20% 10-year risk of coronary artery disease, in patients who are willing to take a statin but don't really want to take a statin, that the absence of calcium really supports not going with primary prevention because they have no evidence of disease at that point. This is what he calls the power of zero. He extrapolated from the statin discussion also to the aspirin discussion that is ongoing because of the risks of uh, taking a daily aspirin. Finally, he makes the point that when you do have positive calcium, that clearly supports primary prevention because we know they have subclinical atherosclerosis, but it should not 
lead to further diagnostic testing in the absence of symptoms. Prior to reading uh, this excellent article and having this discussion with Dr. Blaha, I was totally unsure of what to do with these limited CT scans looking for coronary artery calcium. I now find this a very interesting and potentially very helpful test to do on certain patients. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.